Welcome to Stat, I'm telling you all Medical true crime stories, and it gets bizarre Karen Wickham, yeah she used to work in ER And now she's sharing the knowledge, so let's get involved Ay, Funny and scary at the same time Medical mysteries, all facts, she ain't lying <laughs> So tune in to Stat, if you dare Cause crazy things can happen anytime, anywhere <laughs> Yeah Hello, hello, hello everybody out there in podcast land Welcome to Stat, Shocking Traumas and Treatments and I'm your host, Karen Wickham, coming to you from beautiful Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Today's episode tells the epic and terrible story of Mary Ellen Wilson. If you're not familiar with this woman, she was the first child to be rescued from the hands of abusive parents. And this led to what is now modern day CPS. So it is a horrible yet fascinating story. So before I get started, I want to thank everybody who supports me on iTunes and Patreon. And I want to give a big thank you to Lovebug Peking. I'm not sure if I thanked you last time, so but I don't want to miss you. So thank you so much. BSN for us and we Bubba Bubba not sure what that means but it's a pretty awesome name so thank you everybody for your awesome reviews if they can keep coming in it helps out the podcast quite a bit and you know what good bad or indifferent I like to hear what you guys have to say so without further ado let's get started Mary Ellen Wilson's first 10 years of her life were pretty tragic and I want to start from the very beginning so you can have a, a full understanding of what led to the unfolding of this incredible story. So I think naturally the best place to start is with her parents, Thomas Wilson and Frances O'Connor. Tom and Fanny got married in 1861, just before Tom volunteered to fight for his new country. Fanny begged him not to go, but Tom knew that not to join the fighting Irish 69th would be a betrayal of the oath he made to America when he stepped onto her shores. Tom and Fanny both fled Ireland due to the potato famine. And although they didn't know each other at the time in coming over, they met at the St. Nicholas Hotel in New York City where they both worked. He had started there as an oyster shucker and noticed Fanny, a hotel laundress, the first day. He soon learned she was born Frances Connor. She was 20 years old at the time and the most wonderful woman Tom had ever met. It took Tom only a few months to convince Fanny she could not live without him either. On March 10, 1864, Tom received a letter from his wife announcing the birth of their daughter, Mary Ellen. She told him of the difficult living conditions in their apartment and was afraid of being evicted. She hoped that Tom could send her money. Tom had recently sent them $47, but she hadn't received it yet. Tom was beside himself with joy. He was so happy to be a father and he couldn't wait to get back home to his little family. He dreamed of having a small farm. Meanwhile, Fanny was mending clothes to help make ends meet. But it was not enough. Fanny knew that she had to get a job. She went back to St. Nicholas Hotel to try to get her job back as a laundress. She was rehired and she started the next day. She got up early and packed up Mary Ellen on her back and headed off to work. She was really happy that she could do her job and have Mary Ellen with her. Only she couldn't. 
Halfway through her day, she was approached by her boss, Mr. Gilmore. And he said to her that if she wanted to keep her job, she wouldn't bring her baby with her the next day. Fanny was devastated. What was she going to do? That's when her old friend and fellow laundress, Alana, came to her rescue. She stood between Fanny and Gilmore and said that she was arranging for Mary Ellen to be watched by a caregiver starting the next day. Fanny had no idea what Alana was talking about. So Alana explained that she knew of a woman that would take in Mary Ellen and provide all the necessary care for her feet. Fanny was apprehensive, but she felt that she had no choice. The woman's name was Martha Scorer, and the fee would be $2 a month, which was an astronomical amount, but she couldn't see it any other way. Besides, Tom would be coming home soon, and this would just be only for a short time. Alana took Mary Ellen to Martha Scorer after her shift. So, who was this Martha Scorer? Martha was a 26-year-old whose husband had recently left her after only two years of marriage. Martha was unable to bear children of her own, and her husband would not accept that, even though she was a wonderful mother to his three young sons. This left her devastated and alone. Martha needed to earn an income. That is when she decided to take in children. She offered her services to the single mothers who worked at the hotel. Her apartment was warm, clean, and safe and the children were well cared for. She promised herself not to get attached to these children, as her services could be ended at any time, and she may never see them again. But this changed when she met Mary Ellen. She was a sweet and bright child, and Martha fell in love with her almost right away. A week had gone by, and Fanny had not even stopped by to see Mary Ellen. She was so exhausted after her work that she would go home and fall asleep, which I think is kind of weird because... If my child was with a complete stranger, I would want to be there after work. But I don't know. I didn't live in those times. So anyway, I digress. After that first week, when Fanny returned home from work, she received a letter from Tom. When she opened it, she saw the letter wasn't from Tom, but rather a letter from his best friend. It informed her that Tom had been killed. Fanny was devastated. Her heart was broken. And all she could think of was seeing Mary Ellen. She ran all the way to Martha Scorer's apartment, and Martha was surprised by the sudden visit and felt a pang of worry that Fanny might take her away. After a short visit, Fanny told Martha that she would need her to continue caring for Mary Ellen and that she would provide her with the widow's pension she would receive from her husband's death. After leaving Martha and Mary Ellen, she felt very alone and lost and Fanny made a decision that would forever negatively affect Mary Ellen and herself in the most horrible of ways. Fanny went into a pub and had the first drink of her life, and this drink led to severe alcoholism. The owner of the pub, an alcoholic himself, would become her second husband. Fanny found herself going to the bar after every workday and all day on her days off. It became the only way for her to deal with her grief. During this time, she had not seen Mary Ellen, and Martha became closer and closer to the little girl, so much so that she started to feel very maternal towards her. One day, Fanny showed up sloppy drunk at Martha's apartment to see Mary Ellen. She was so drunk that she could barely stand, so Martha gave her some water and put her to bed. When Fanny sobered up, Martha told Fanny that she needed to stop drinking and get it together, and that she couldn't allow Fanny to see Mary Ellen in her condition. Fanny handed over the paperwork to her widow's pension to cash in once a month and that she would return when she got her shit together. 
She never returned, and it was the last time that Fanny ever saw her daughter. Months passed. At the end of the month, when Mary Ellen turned 16 months old, Martha went to collect the money for Mary Ellen's care, and the clerk at the office asked for ID. She, of course, couldn't prove herself to be Fanny, and the clerk told her that collecting the money instead of Fanny had been fraud. Martha hadn't realized that she had been doing something wrong all along, and the clerk let her go without a warning. Martha was now in a desperate state, as she could no longer afford to take care of Mary Ellen. Martha couldn't bear the thought of losing Mary Ellen. She loved her as if she were her very own. She sold her only piece of jewelry, a necklace, but that didn't help much, and she even tried begging for money. It just wasn't enough, and she knew that she would have to take the little girl to the almshouse for children to be cared for. The next day, she went to Blackwell's Island. The almshouse on Blackwell's Island was a four-story rectangular building that ran north to south, as did the island itself. The entire first floor comprised of the children's wing, located in the upper cross where the main offices were, including the superintendent, George Kellogg's office. Maximum capacity in the children's wing was 70, but there was now well over 150 children staying in the rooms at the almshouse, with more being brought in each day. Triple capacity of the almshouse was not unusual, especially in the children's wing. George Kellogg was the corrupt superintendent of the children's wing of the almshouse. He didn't care at all about the children. He only cared about money, especially the side money he could make doing his job, with, of course, as little effort as possible. He was a despicable man. He had been running a dirty operation, often taking bribes and throwbacks to people who wanted children. In plain words, he was selling children for the right price. Enter Tom McCormick. Tom had been to Blackwell's Island once before, looking for a child to replace the three that he had lost. He decided that he wanted to bring the child home as soon as possible, and he picked out Mary Ellen, and he was determined to have her. Abigail was a matron at Blackwell's children's ward. She had been an inmate there as well when she found herself homeless and starving due to no fault of her own. She worked as an inmate taking care of the children in the almshouse. Her hard work earned her a job and eventually she worked her way up to full-time matron. Abigail loved children and was very kind and caring towards them. Although she tried not to get too close because nearly 75% of the children that entered died to some form of contagious disease. Believe it or not, this was an improvement. Before Abigail's devotion to taking excellent care of these children, the death rate was 100%. Because of this horrible reality, Abigail promised herself she would never get too close to the children because it would break her heart. She found this very hard to do when she met the newest occupant, Mary Ellen Wilson. She was a sweet-natured little girl who had been well cared for and loved, and she didn't fit in there. One day, Abigail saw a strange man in a bowler hat standing in the doorway watching the children. A strange smile resided on his lips, and Abby could not help but notice that he wore the exact same suit of clothes he wore the first time she saw him. This was Tom McCormick. When he entered into Mr. Kellogg's office, she snuck down the hallway to eavesdrop on the goings-on inside. This is what she heard. Mr. Kellogg saying to Mr. McCormick, quote, 
I believe I mentioned to you at our last meeting that there are certain fees in the like which, if taken care of in advance, can expedite the indenture process. I don't believe I gave you the figure, however. End of quote. McCormick said, quote, I am a butcher, Mr. Kellogg, on a moderate income. I'm afraid the fee is too high. I may have to wait for the progress of bureaucracy. End of quote. Mr. Kellogg adjusted the fee to an amount that they both could agree on. Mr. Kellogg suggested that McCormick go out and choose a child like it was a puppy. But McCormick informed him that he had already picked out a child, Mary Ellen Wilson. And from that point, Mr. Kellogg had put her aside to be taken by Tom McCormick upon his next visit as soon as possible. The next day, Tom and his wife Mary went to get Mary Ellen Wilson. Mary was livid. Tom had told her that he had a mistress and that they had a child together. He further stated that she was mentally unwell and that he needed to raise a child as his mistress was incapable. This was not a good way to have a child enter their home. Mary, who was a spiteful, cruel, and horrible woman, hated this child even before meeting her. As Mary and Tom entered Kellogg's office, Abigail felt a chill go down her spine. This time, Tom brought an evil-looking woman with him, Mary Ellen Wilson's future mother and abuser. Abigail did as last time and listened in on the meeting. This is what she witnessed. Tom McCormick sat down and slid a plain white envelope onto the desk. Kellogg flashed McCormick's wife a big smile and said, Mrs. McCormick, do you have anything to add that might convince the office you can support and care for the child? He plucked the envelope from the desk and slid it into his breast pocket. Yes, sir, she said. I'd like to add that I watched you slip that white envelope full of money in your pocket there, and that means you're selling us this child. I'd also like to add that we probably aren't the first two folks who walked in here and gave you a packet of money for a child. She glared at him and added, Now do we get to take her today or not? Mr. Kellogg said, I can return the fee to you if you like and say good day to you both. Nonsense, you have your money now. Give us the child my husband wants and hurry because I want out of the stinking place, Mary said. After Tom and Mary left, Abigail stomped into the room and confronted George Kellogg. This is a recreation of the events. Abigail Quigley stormed into Mr. George Kellogg's office. This is what George said. Mrs. Quigley, what can I do for you? You can shut your mouth, Mr. Kellogg. I have something to say, and you better listen to me and listen good. I beg your pardon? You'll beg me to keep my mouth shut. I was told to prepare Mary Ellen Wilson for indenture just over an hour ago, and now Lucy tells me they've already taken her. All the details were attended to. What is your point, Mrs. Quigley? My point is, Mr. Kellogg that I was outside your office door Monday last when you suggested Mr. McCormack pay you a fee. I heard you tell him that you would ensure a speedy process. I heard it all, Mr. Kellogg. What you think you heard is none of your concern, Mrs. Quigley. Oh, I know what I heard. How could you? You sent this child off with no proof, no evidence that these people would properly care for Mary Ellen. She is a person, Mr. Kellogg. You hear me? Not something to be sold, but a person. Now, now, calm down. What do you want? What do I want? I want the child to be taken care of. That's what I want. Mr. Kellogg, I believe it's more than you've ever considered. Have you drawn up the indenture papers yet? No time. They wanted the child immediately. Yes, and you already have the money, I presume? 
then I shall have provisions for you to add to the contract, provisions that will guarantee Mary Ellen is well cared for. In other words, I would like a supervised indenture arranged. Supervised? Yes, put directly into the contract that the McCormicks must bring the child to you for inspection once a year. A written report will not do. There are other things I would like added as well. There shall be provisions for her education, religious and otherwise, for adequate clothing to be supplied, and anything else I can think of. These items will be verified when she is brought in each year. If you do that, I'll keep my silence, unless my conscience won't allow it. Once every two years is the standard. I said once each year. I will leave you now to draw out the papers. And remember, Mr. Kellogg, I'm sure it wouldn't be too difficult to find others who've paid for children in the past. She turned to leave, then stopped. Abby rested both hands on the desk and looked Kellogg directly in the eyes. Well, I've got you here. I've been meaning to request an increase in salary. A decent increase. You will see to that, won't you? She left the office without waiting for a reply. It's now time to take this story in a little bit of a different direction and talk about an important player in all this, and his name was Mr. Henry Burke. Mr. Burke was a legation secretary at the court of Alexander II of Russia. Though he had been an outstanding cabinet member, appointed by President Lincoln himself, and highly regarded by the Russians. There were a couple things that made him no longer work at this job. First of all, he worked with an idiot of a co-worker who was after his job, and he wanted to do more meaningful work. He arranged to be introduced to the Earl of Harrowsby. The Earl was a president of the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, an organization in its 41st year. He did meet with the Earl, and they discussed setting up a branch of this organization in America because Mr. Berg knew that the United States had no similar organization that he knew of. After his visit with the Earl, Berg decided that he would form such an institution at home, and suddenly he was anxious to return to America and begin the organization's charter. Upon returning to America, on the corner of Broadway and Chambers in New York, a teamster beat a tired, sweat-soaked course, cursing each time he lashed the animal. Berg sped up, approaching the teamster with a quick step. Standing well over six feet, Berg looked down at the cruel man and said, quote, I implore you, sir, stop beating your horse this instant, end of quote. The man looked up at him with disbelief on his puffy red face. Quote, I'll beat my own damn horse if I want to. To the devil with you, end of quote. As a teamster raised his crop again, Berg seized his wrist in midair. Quote, I suggest you study my face carefully, sir. You shall see it again, and for you, it will be too soon. End of quote. Berg moved forward to starting the chapter of the ASPCA. He arranged for a meeting at Clinton Hall. He presented his plea and desire to start the first American chapter of the Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. There were many influential men in attendance. They would decide the fate of the charter. Berg prepared them for what they were about to hear. His account on the abuses that he saw around the world, including the U.S., and that it needed to be brought to a stop. Over the next hour, Berg explained how in London and in other cities of Great Britain and Ireland, a society existed that protected the rights of animals. He expressed his interest in founding a kindred society in America. He delved back into history, noting what had happened to the animals and humans in the Roman arena, 
the tortures of the Spanish bullrinks, and many other violations of morality he witnessed daily in New York, where street railway and omnibus companies abused their horses mercilessly. When he finished, he nodded, thanked the audience, and gathered up his papers, throwing a wave to the crowd. The applause was deafening as he stepped down from the stage. A leading New York attorney, James T. Brady, drew up the charter, and grasping the official application in his hands, Berg was eager with anticipation as he headed off to Albany. Finally, there would be an actual law to support this just case, and a private society with a great deal of public influence. I'm going to stop the story right there for today because the next part gets really, well, terrible. So let's leave it there for now. It's come to my mind that I haven't told you guys a suture room story for a while. And I think it's time. So come in, walk down the hallway. Don't pay attention to the screams and the cries and the terrible smells because I'm taking you into a really cozy room, an area that you're well familiar with. A cozy bed, extra air-filled pillows, warm flannel blankies. I put all the sharp instruments away and I've brought you a very special treat. We had an extra dinner tray left over. And to make it easier for you, it's all pureed. You've got pureed beef and pureed carrots and pureed, I'm not sure what it is, but it's beige and it smells good enough. And guess what? Jello. And to top it all off, thickened tea, just in case you have some problems swallowing. So tuck in and get ready to hear this wild and wacky true story that took place when I worked in the ER. I'm calling this one Dueling Drunks. One night when I was working in an acute care area, we had two men that were brought in unconscious from drinking too much. They were barely able to breathe on their own. So we put them in rooms on the opposite side of the acute care area. You have one side, nurse's station, and then another side. So the nurse's station is sandwiched in between. So the one guy, and it was also like a crazy busy night. Well, you know, like usual. We had people in with heart attacks and respiratory distress and things where we really needed the area to be as quiet as possible. That just wasn't going to happen this evening. So we have drunk man A on one side and drunk man B on the other side. We had to have them in restraints because they were punching and fighting and biting and doing all this obnoxious stuff. You see, they had an IVN and we had them hooked up to monitors to make sure that, you know, they were stable. They kept on ripping this stuff out of their arms, out of their, off their bodies, all that kind of stuff. So we had to have them hooked up. So the one guy just starts yelling and talking to himself. Ah, son of a bitch, ah, you know, and I'll get you and you, you, yeah. I'm like, oh, oh my God. So the nurse that was taking care of him went in to speak to him. Well, my guy on my side 
thought that drunk man A was yelling at him. So drunk man B started going, I'll come get you, you son of a bitch. You, you'll learn from this. I'm going to rough you up and hurt you and I'll, I'll take care of your old lady for you. And I'm like, oh, okay, shh, be quiet. Other people are here trying to rest and sleep and he's pulling up the, the restraints to try to get out of the bed. Drunk man A is like, oh, you think so, you dirty bastard? Let me get to you. So they just start dueling, yelling at each other from across the room when they weren't even really talking to each other and didn't know each other. So this fight broke out out of nowhere. So we're like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? We, we, we can't give them anything to settle. We just have to try to like calm them down as best as possible, have them go back to sleep. So I came up with a bit of an idea. I know as strange as it sounds, the one thing that was driving my guy crazy was the blood pressure cuff. Every time it went off, he tried to rip it off with his teeth. Yes. And he was successful very often in doing that. He'd grab the edge, rip it off with his teeth, shake his head around like he was a bulldog and whip it across the room. I'm like, oh my God, I, I got to give him something to distract him. So the volunteers made these they're, they're like knitted dolls, these little cute little soft little plush like knitted dolls to give to the little children when they came in so they'd have something to hug. So I went and grabbed about four or five of those and went into my guy's room and I placed them on his shoulders around his head and around his other shoulder. So it kind of came up and around. Well, he didn't like it too much. He started grabbing him with his teeth and shaking him around his head like a, like a, again, a bulldog. And he was whipping them at the, at the drapes uh, everywhere. And I thought, okay, this isn't going to work. And when I walked into the room, he saw me and he was making the sounds and he threw his head up in the air and this doll landed in the garbage basket. And I looked at him and I'm like, point, way to go. You got it in. And he's like, ah, yeah. Oh yeah. Son of a bitch. And he fell asleep. So basically he didn't like the little dolls and he was tearing them apart with his teeth, but it tired him out and he was able to go back to sleep. And the other guy fell asleep as well. And they settled for the rest of the evening. Thank goodness. And got up and stumbled home the next day in the morning. So yeah, not a very long story. It's a short one, but it just gives you a bit of an idea of some of the things that we have to deal with in the ER. So I hope you enjoyed that. Thank you all for listening in today. I'm really glad that you were here. And I look forward to the next episode. So take care of each other. Take care of yourself. Love one another. And most importantly, love yourself. Peace. One love. Sometimes it'll be the cure that'll kill you. Gotta watch out. Yeah, you gotta watch your back. Cause you don't want to be another episode on stat. Thank you for tuning in. Learn a thing or two. These medical mysteries can be unbelievable. Yeah. Subscribe. Make sure you do that so you'll be tuned in and be ready for the next show. Stat.